Christmas came early. Yeah. This year. It is the first day of Hanukkah. It is the first night of Hanukkah. And so, you know, eight crazy nights of gifts. We're recording our very Jewish Christmas special in the future. But just a little tease at that, you know, the first gift of the season for the extended clip podcast. Um, I, I hope you guys like this. I, I you know, I, I made it just for you. <laughs> Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and I'd like to wish the boys from the extended clip a very happy anniversary. Uh, now, it was 75 weeks ago uh, that uh, you uh, did uh, 75 weeks ago that you reviewed Problem Child. And uh, that's a coincidence because uh, Problem Child came out 75 years ago. So it's kind of a how Problem Child never won the Academy Award for Best Picture just proves that Hollywood is totally political. Anyway, uh, a happy anniversary, Eddie. Malcolm and JT, and many, many more to come. Many, uh, and maybe uh, uh, your radio program will last another week or so, but more anniversaries. <laughs> Thank you so much to our new friend, Gilbert Gottfried. Amazing. That's yeah. a voice you need wow. to pay for. I get it. I can't believe you did that. Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like I was towards me? This is Michael Mann and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 80. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And calling in all the way from the peach state of Georgia. Yes, another returning champion from that old peach state. Our favorite fruit. Uh, it's uh, our friend, a film programmer and returning champion, Evan Amaral. What's up, everybody? I'm really excited to be back. <laughs> well, we're really excited to have you back. And clearly, we're all still just uh, reeling from Gilbert's introduction to the podcast Absolutely. this week. Once again, thank you, Gilbert. Uh, and I agree about politics. Yeah. I'm glad you just finally recognized us. You know, I, the podcast is really growing that even, you know, some of the top celebrities are even giving it a listen. So look, we had the Michael Mann bumper for the season two premiere, you know, and uh, if this is just like a mid season surprise, you don't want to know what's coming for S3. <laughs> so our double feature programmed by our guest uh and boy he is such a good programmer this uh this double feature was the night of counting the years 1969 by shadi abdel salam and bones by ernest dickerson from 2001 evan uh what what prompted you to bring these films together for the podcast it honestly started with bones because i watched it during so this october i decided to do a like one where you just watch horror movies all month people call it like hooptober or something and like varies, i've heard I of think. this <laughs> um <laughs> but um so i watched bones and i've been like totally obsessed with it ever since i and this week, I actually went back and watched like three other Ernest Dickerson movies just to kind of like get more of a taste for what he did as a director. 
and I'll talk about that later, but it's all amazing. Um, and so I was thinking about something to pair with that. And then I watched the night of counting the years and I kind of put them together because both movies start with like the disturbance of human remains and they're, uh, kind of like structured around a loss of cultural heritage or also, um, like assimilation sort of pressured by capitalism and uh also because honestly i think bones is just a really great time and the night of counting the years is just this really like unique and beautiful and transfixing movie uh so i thought that they'd be a fun pair to talk about and you were right. Well, I mean, we haven't talked about them yet, but uh, they were a fun pair to watch. And also, one of the truest double features to the ethos of the show in a long time. Like, I mean, Night of Counting the Years is restored by World Cinema Foundation. And sure, you know, it has its genre title, The Mummy. Uh, but yes. it, it, this is definitively like a kind of highbrow film and like almost what you would expect when someone says like oh i'm bringing in a highbrow foreign film you know to see a little bit of the world <laughs> and it's a period piece you know uh but it is of course still a very fun film uh but bones just like using horror to deconstruct even some like black exploitation stuff just like clashing together all of these lowbrow forms uh because dickerson is just a fucking genius um yeah this was a great double feature I really wanted to do something that would stay true to that form, so I'm glad you guys appreciated that. Because last time I was here, I definitely kind of broke the rules a little bit. <laughs> well, we we break the rules all the time. I know you guys do, but I wanted to respect them for once. Uh, while I, <laughs> you know, I this is our new pivot for extended clip. Extended clip, a podcast about following the rules, <laughs> about tradition. I yeah. mean, now that IndieWire <laughs> bought us, we have to we have to follow a lot more strict guidelines. <laughs> Shit, I guess we got to do the intro again. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to Extended Clip, an IndieWire podcast. I'm Eric Cohn. Yeah, head. Uh, ma- All right, we're not we're not recycling bits from the bonus episodes. Um, <laughs> Malcolm, how'd you feel about this double feature? I, I like both these movies a lot. And, you know, I think uh, they kind of taught me a lesson, both of them. They, I got to stop grave robbing. <laughs> That's I got to stop robbing graves because there's some consequences that I haven't even really reckoned with yet when it comes to robbing graves. So I'm going to leave that alone for a while. That's true. The consequences reach way beyond uh, the swag of the person whose grave you might rob. There's also, like, historical <laughs> implications there. Yeah. Um, so let's start with our feature the night of counting the years evan do you want to tell us just like a log line kind of like what this film is the night of counting the years is uh about this um clan that for three thousand years out in egypt um has been making their living by going into this hidden cave in a mountain where uh several eras worth of like egyptian pharaoh's mummies are stored uh, and no one knows that they're there. And it's a secret that this clan has just like amongst themselves. And they, every once in a while, will go and take an artifact out and sell it to a trader. And that's how they, you know, sustain themselves. Um, but the patriarch dies and the two sons are, you know, basically let in on the secret and they both recoil from it. They're disgusted by it. Uh, but this sets off like a chain of events where the uh, government antiquities service comes and steps in. And as an important side note, this film takes place 
one year before the British occupation of Egypt. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these sorts of like conflicts and the divide and conquer ethos that you see in this movie is it, it has this kind of like prophetic feel because it's just going to be repeated on another scale one year later. Um, But so, yeah, that's just like the basic, the basics of it. Yeah, no, that's a great way of describing it. And also like, I don't know, just the the impeding fear of the city folk, you know, even not yeah. from the colonial rule of England, but just like the people in Cairo versus the the tribes and clans of the mountains and desert, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the, there's so much at play in here, like historically and like such like mm-hmm. huge, you know, tensions with such huge implications. I read a little bit about the filmmaker Shadi Abdel Salam and this uh this sort of like this just rich sense of history that he cultivates makes a lot of sense this was his only feature film and he made some shorts and documentary and uh like medium length documentaries but he mostly worked as a costume and production designer for egyptian historical films and he was extremely dedicated to making sure that like the details were correct and Uh, like the authenticity and the feel of everything because he wanted to preserve Egyptian cultural heritage through film. And um, he also, I think had, I read that he was the head of the, um, the government's experimental film division for a while. Uh, And he, um, he had one more feature before he passed away. Uh, He passed away, but he never got to make it because he insisted that it be made with Egyptian money and was never Mm. able to, raise all the funds for it um but no yeah so he's just like an incredibly fascinating guy and i really wish i it was easier to access like so much of the body of work he was engaged in you know because you know just even kind of a cursory look for some of the films that he uh was involved in is pretty hard to find i know that one of his shorts called the eloquent peasant is restored by the world cinema project too though Mm. so that one's pretty available I know. Yeah, this film is it's straight it's kind of hard to place stylistically also. It's like a very slow and kind of austere style, but it also really leans into the, you know, cavernous production design of the tombs and everything and it's like yeah. almost a mix like a Kubrick like mix of I guess verisimilitude and just like very exacting production design and cinematography. Yeah. Uh, which is like kind of a weird mix that creates something of a dissonance especially for this kind of film where it's so embedded in it's like historical realism but i always find that to be like a really productive uh Mm -hmm. dissonance i guess in those kind of movies for me i feel like that the combination of the style and like the the lingering like presence of the past sort of make it feel like a ghost story, like especially with the score and just the way the camera like floats around through all these spaces is so like haunting. And then we'll like focus on um, like characters, like just sort of like staring and like taking in like the buildings that are around them. And it's just like in, I I don't know, in some moments where there's like a real absence of dialogue, you just feel the history that exists there and just, I don't know, the gulf and like tensions of the culture and it's it's really beautiful. But yeah, there's a real like tension to the style and I think it's kind of like due to the fact that a lot of, uh, it's, a lot of the movies kind of played in real time. It's not really like fast forwarding through time or stuff like that or, uh, you know, doing, you know, classic uh, modern techniques like coverage. You really 
do have a lot of times where you kind of just hear the wind blow. People look at things, you know, people just being silent and, you know, people just walking along and it kind of just adds to, you know, plus you have this like kind of humming score under it up yeah. through a lot of the time. So there is like kind of a, almost kind of feels like the way I, I kind of interpret it because it kind of took me a while to get into this movie, but it's like, mm-hmm. it is just like kind of like a, I don't know. It's a lot of these characters just walk like they know there's like impending doom or something like that. Totally. And, totally. Uh, yeah. and it's just a, it's just interesting that this, I don't know, this movie kind of concludes on a not very comforting note, just a, a lot of unanswered questions that I, you know, I, yeah. I don't really have the historical, you know, knowledge to really tackle, but I was interested by them. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just like the, the, the time image, you know, mm-hmm. not to uh, yeah. go into theory BS, but uh, it, it just without even knowing what that means, even you could see how it applies here in terms of the passage of real time and yeah. the indulgence in like the elements, like literally the, the rising of sand from the wind passing across the screen. Like there's, there's some really crazy shit in this movie that allows you not to just think about the historical and dramatic implications, but also just to kind of be in the atmosphere that the filmmaker sets up. Yeah, and that's also to mention that there's almost kind of like, once you get into the, once like the antiquity service arrives towards like the middle of the film, it almost kind of switches over into having some genre elements. Mm-hmm. So there really is this, uh, there's a lot of backstabbing and there, I love how that uh, half of the film is blocked because you're talking about the depth of the production design mm-hmm. into these like cavernous mountains and caves and everyone's just kind of darting in and out in the foreground and background and mid and it gets really chaotic at a certain point once everyone's, hi- uh, you know, the, vil- the tribe is all coming to hide under the mountain and strategize about, you know, how they deal with the city folk coming in and what they're going to do. Um, but also, I love that you guys brought up the score because that was one of my favorite things about this movie immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, there's actually an interesting connection here because um, the score was by an Italian composer named Mario Nassimbene. And uh, Shadi Abdel Salam met him through Roberto Rossellini because oh, wow. uh, Roberto Rossellini uh, hired Shadi Abdel Salam to work on some costumes for him. And then they became friends and uh, Rossellini helped him sort of finance this film and get it made and everything. Wow, this film has like uh, the Italian love like on the outside <laughs> through and through because World Cinema Foundation, that's Martin Scorsese's thing, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly, yeah. Multiple generations <laughs> of Italian gods of cinema, Rossellini and Scorsese, you know, just giving the film their blessing. It's it's an Egyptian film through and through, but you know, there's a little bit of that classic Italian <laughs> touch. Uh, didn't Gucci sponsor it too or something <laughs> yeah, like that? It's I, like, uh, <laughs> it was uh, uh, Cartier. Cartier. So that just lets Cartier. you know this is a designer film, it designer was, refined film. Yeah, with the support of Giorgio Armani, Cartier, and Qatar Airways. Dang. So you know, Batman oh, versus wow. Superman. Right? Oh no, money. that was Turkish Airlines. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, just the first time we see the process of them uh, robbing these skeletons, just like having to behead a skeleton to it's get so that shocking. insane necklace, like that. In- Oh my god, the ultimate chain snatch. Like, come on. like that that 
piece that they take is so incredible. And Evan, I sent you the screenshot because it's not unlike the design on Pam Greer's window. No, yes, I did some research here. Very strange. Okay, okay, please go on. I did, I did some research here, and I kind of want to save some of like my interpretation for when we get to Bones. For for the listeners out there, uh, Eddie sent me after he watched these movies. He found that uh, the necklace, the design on the necklace from Night of Counting the Years, that literally gets axed off. The mummy's head gets axed off, and it's framed in the shot where the guys are like ripping the necklace off of it, like zombies pulling the guts out of a corpse in like a George A. Romero movie. And um, it's just like the it's this um, eye pattern with a tear, uh, and Pam Greer's character in Bones, her storefront has that eye on it. Um, but long, I'll get into it later. Uh, like the, some of like the myth behind it when we get to bones, mm-hmm. but, um, it's called the Wadget eye or the eye of, uh, the eye of Horus. And it's basically just generally, it's like a symbol of protection and also, uh, like regeneration. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's on a lot of like funerary stuff. I have to shout out to my girlfriend for helping me with this because she just took an ancient uh, Egyptian art class. Um, Convenient. So so <laughs> I definitely got into some conspiracy brain shit with her about this last night. Hand rub. Um, <laughs> but so I'll talk about that more with Bones when we get to like what's going on in that movie. But help me remember to do that too. Um, okay. <laughs> we would definitely will. Because I'm, I'm very interested in that. It's like a thing that's been gnawing at me since I watched these movies. Um, but anyway, back to The Night of Counting the Years, which we should say also goes by the title Al Mumia or The Mummy. Also, the first film from the continent of Africa that we've ever reviewed on this podcast uh, I guess so. I've I've shouted out an Egyptian film before in the middle segment to cover my tracks, but um, yeah, I don't think we've we've done one. I think you know, also middle. Episode. I may have gone middle segment Usman Sembene, but maybe not even. Talk I about that I have yeah, yeah, yeah. before. Uh, <laughs> I know that all these middle all these, all these middle segment. I mean, look, this is self critique here. I got to get into it. You know, all these middle segment picks. We go with the esoteric stuff. Then we talk about these white boy movies on the main <laughs> on the main things. It's like, come on, man. Come on, man. I think I heard, is that a Joe Biden speech or something? <laughs> yeah, it's the, the gay bathhouse. <laughs> well, I gotta say, extended clip global, not globalist. Exactly. We, we we retain that and we're you know what? I'll 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 say it. Twenty twenty one definitely <laughs> if we're going it's such a weak start. I know. <laughs> okay, okay. Twenty twenty one less than fifty percent American films. Wow, that's a big promise. Nice. I honestly, I think that is like an incredible move. Okay, I'll, I'm gonna try to do less than fifty percent American. I fully, I fully support that. I think that's something that like everyone should be doing right now. It's true. Honestly. It's true. I mean, it's not even right. It's like everyone should always be doing that, and there's so much access and whatever. We that was that. See, that was also the ethos behind my Patreon pick mm-hmm. for this week. Because for the uh, just it's also is it okay to say what the film is or yeah, just sure go for yeah it. no yeah he's the patreon so <laughs> so uh, so everybody subscribe to the patreon so you can listen to us talk about Ega, um, which is this Indian film from 2012 that is an absolute mind melter. I saved the uncut shit for the patreon, <laughs> um, but 
I also wanted to pick it because, you know, Indian cinema is something that I always need to be better about watching more of because Mm -hmm. it's so diverse and there's so much of it and it's all extremely available. Oh, totally. Uh, So, and also, wouldn't that be the first Indian film you guys have reviewed on pod not in the mm-hmm. middle segment yeah technically yeah, yeah it will be damn yeah, i, yeah. I, I suppose I'm, I'm bringing think... you guys some big milestones i know we've all we've reviewed we've done we've shouted them out on like middle segment and like the, the time machine episode i think i did a short review of duvida maybe but yeah mm-hmm. uh, another another big you know whatever we'll ju- we're doing it yeah that's all that matters uh anyway back to this film Jeez, what a what a sidetrack yeah. <laughs> sorry no, about that no no no. shout out to the no. people who haven't seen this movie who just got like five minutes of content that they could relate to yeah we just we need to woke scold ourselves sometimes and tell us that we can do better no it's okay it's okay it's like um and this is well that's why i i really like the real like something really high something really low double feature because you see the best in both when you look mm-hmm. at them like that oh totally i really i really do think uh, and it's a great gateway to see stuff from you know places that you're not familiar with true we rock yeah. we're the best yeah <laughs> now that i think about it i'm pretty sure we're probably doing better than anyone else so whatever yeah, yeah. uh anyway <laughs> so basically you reach this moral dilemma of like your father and your father's father and etc have been making a living off of defiling corpses and not just corpses but corpses of like one of the great ancient civilizations and like erasing history essentially uh, but also just making living as immoral thieves and then maybe you know different moral codes coming in from different uh, types of people that show up in this movie whether they represent uh, the state like the people from Cairo who are professional antique people or, you know, just the, the looming presence of colonialism that will come. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty heavy, like existential dilemma to be going through for these two brothers. I, I like this dilemma because it is like, yeah, should you be robbing from graves? Maybe not. Maybe so. <laughs> maybe no. But do these boys from the city coming down, do they have the authority to tell you what to do with your own graves? Exactly. So just, it's just because they've yeah. read the, 1880s books about (laughs) what actually happened like they don't really know like they you know those authorities probably aren't of that much authority after Mm -hmm. all they haven't lived in those regions and then you have people within the you know the the tribe like who are willing to work with you know city members and then people who are completely against it people who will work with city members but pretend like they don't so we kind of have a whole disarray here even though it's you know it doesn't feel like a chaotic movie but there's a lot of uh different viewpoints coming on they all kind of clash with each other yeah you know, yeah I, I think oh go sorry ahead, <laughs> no yeah i think um that's like one of the most interesting elements of this movie are like all of the just like really nuanced shades that mm-hmm. it's exploring here with this stuff um because you know i i think like the role of the state is a really like ambiguous one in this movie because mm-hmm. the brothers think it's kind of a good thing to give the you know give the artifacts to the state and other people don't but it's um or well that's more at the end of the movie that's what they come to but um the it's it's sort of like i when they first confront their grandfathers about it uh they're basically saying you know well they're just gonna eventually sell it to someone else anyway so we might as well make the money off of it mm-hmm. uh and then like equally distributed amongst themselves and I do think it like it just adds extra levels of complication to the like moral like resolutions you can reach here. 
Um, because once you, you know, introduce the material element there, especially knowing that in one year, anything in the Egyptians' government possession is going to become in the British government's uh, possession. Mm-hmm. It just feel everything feels so just like utterly doomed, but in, but in ways that are just like so completely entangled. And I don't think that's an unfamiliar feeling from right now, mm-hmm. to be honest. <laughs> so this is, I think it's, yeah, that's just like one of the most, really really like richly drawn parts of the movie in my opinion yeah i mean i feel like it's something that like while this movie is like a very specific time and place the fact that like uh generational conflict also sort of relates to like uh cross-cultural conflict emerging like as younger generations like globalize more and sort of uh intermingle uh with other groups they like have differing opinions and confront like the i don't know confront the past and i think this engages with that in a really fascinating way that like is broadly applicable yeah i totally agree i feel like we we haven't necessarily gone through the film uh narratively it's really not one that has too many narrative uh plot points as Mm -mm. it were (laughs) no not really uh I mean, Evan, do you want to explain kind of how this wraps up at the end, though? You know, once the Antiquities Service arrives, uh, it's all sort of going, it's gone into disarray. And they, the very first scene of the movie is this, like, shadowy scene of, like, all of the Antiquities people around this table. It looks like they're, like, cons- like you know, forming a conspiracy or something. Yeah. Elites. Um, yeah, exactly. It's they're... that mansion from The Simpsons uh, where all the yes, famous yes. people are. <laughs> But um, they're basically saying out loud, they're like, you know, they won't expect us to be there. We'll throw them in disarray and it'll be much easier to figure out where everything is so that Mm -hmm. we can take it. Um, And that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Uh, Because once they get there, the tribe completely like breaks into factions. One of the brothers is murdered for speaking out against it by the um, by the merchant that uh, normally sells their artifacts. And then. You know, of course, the Antiquities Service comes in and eventually, you know, tensions boil the sort of like lead character of the movie, which is uh, one of the one brother who survives. Um, He goes and basically at first decides that he doesn't want to participate in this anymore. And he's beaten and left for dead by the merchant. And then... um, after that, he decides, you know, I'm going to go to the antiquity service. It's the right thing to do, and it will end all of this chaos that's been sown in our community. Um, and so that's what he does. And then the last 15 or so minutes of this movie are probably the most stunning start part of it. And it's just this long procession of uh, people working for the antiquity service and locals carrying out each of these... Um, like there's tens of sarcophagi in in the cave that they take out and they're carrying them on these like stretchers with uh blankets over them over the dunes and you're just watching like this like almost like parade of covered sarcophagi surf over the dunes while the tribe is sort of like what uh you know back hiding in the ruins and you know there's i think one of them says like you know why why don't you uh, why don't we ambush? Uh, and then the other one's like, who? The dead? You know, there's nothing they can do at this point other than to just return to kind of hiding in the ruins. 
Um, and then the last shot of the movie is the steamship that brought the um, antiquity service over mm. and it's just disappearing back over behind the dunes and it ends on a freeze frame. And that's an interesting moment because there's this great shot earlier in the movie when you first see the steamship come in where the brother is like dramatically running up over the dune and you get this crane up. And once you see past the dune, you can see the steamship and like all of its like sat impending size. And it's just such a like, it's such a just like hard moment to end the movie on. I don't know how else to say that. It's yeah. just, it's like, it's a really kind of like open and kind of hopeless moment. And like, I totally agree with Malcolm. It leaves you with way, way more questions than anything else. <laughs> um, and you just, you aren't, fe- you aren't left feeling in a good place. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> um since we are going kind of long here, do you want to give a bullet rating? Me? Yes. Um, Sorry, I was looking at my phone. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, Making it's eye okay. contact with you, Evan. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry for running long on this one. No, it's um, okay. It's I partially my fault. I definitely didn't let you guys talk enough. Um, but I am going to give this one five bullets. I mean, this is my... I watched it at weeks ago and this was my second time watching it and both times I was just like I think something when we're sort of like talking about all of these weighty qualities of it and the historical weight of it basically we lose sight of like how just like utterly transfixing this movie is and most Mm -hmm. of it is very languorous and you can just kind of like get lost in it and it's like a it's a really really amazing like uh, just aesthetic experience uh to have so um all of that combined i think this is just like a really really great movie uh, i you know i don't see any reason why i won't go all the way for it so that's it <laughs> what about you <laughs> oh me hey yeah i was making eye contact with you. that's that's funny because you know a little insight for the listeners i don't look uh eddie or jt in the eyes at all while we're recording, I kind of just stare ahead. My laptop's um, been blocking Malcolm more than usual on this one. <laughs> and for good reason. Yeah. But uh, I'm going to go three and a half bullets. You know, I, didn't, I wasn't quite, you know, taken back viscerally. I kind of had to sit and appreciate and get in on this movie's wavelength. Mm-hmm. And that could be, you know, kind of harder for like just, you know, the big, the big, you know, explosive scores like five yeah. bullets. Yeah. I got to be honest and give it three and a half. Of course. But there, hey, there's nothing wrong with three. One of my favorite <laughs> yeah, Malcolm Baum quotes is 3.5 is very good. Yeah. Which I, that is my. It favorite. is. Yeah. 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 That is uh, on my rubric. 3.5 means very good. Yeah. <laughs> a little, little insight to ratings. You know, I people have like these dilemmas where it's like, should I rate film? Should I not? Just don't, just don't worry about it. Just, just give it whatever. About it. Just give it whatever, you know, like I have three and a half, whatever. What about this? 2021. No, <laughs> <laughs> Too many proposals. I'm not, Eddie, I'm not willing to change that much. Um, but yeah, this is a really like slow, sure, paranoid movie. Mm-hmm. And I like how it's kind of like compositionally informed by these ruins. It has like a, you know, good sense of architecture to it. And I enjoyed it a lot. JT, what do you think? I see you writing down there. You're gonna you're gonna say something good. Yeah, I, I, JT th- saw me drawing and he was like, Oh, I should draw too. <laughs> no. Thank you for being my hype man, Malcolm. Yeah. 
I was just thinking about, I, I'm giving this four bullets off the top. I was able to tap into it right from the beginning. It has a very eerie quality to it. And I don't know. I, I love my boys Ozu and Ford. And I think they work on, they operate on a similar level of like the past sort of um, forcing to, to confront the future. And this movie really taps into the hopelessness of that, that like ultimately like, um, like there will be these great legacies and like cultures and history that like exists. But like when it comes to like confronting change, like particularly like big industrial change, like ultimately it's going to lose out. And I think um, the main conflict that we talked a lot about where it's like who sort of has that ownership of that history. It's like you take a look at like the tribe and it's like they're selling they're selling the cultural artifacts and it's like, oh, well, that's like devaluing them. It's removing them from like the 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 original spot and you're not able to it might be more difficult for a historian to uh figure out the significance of that culturally but then you'd have these fucking stuff shirts with the antiquities <laughs> department coming in who like they seem like they know their shit and like what they're doing and i feel like that would be like the if i was a lib guy who's like hell yeah science i would be very easy to, to write this picture off as like oh i side with the historians but it's like the british like like a, a fact i remember from high school history class uh, that still is just very shocking is that they would use mummies as fuel in trains sometimes oh just because they discovered so fucking many of them. And so it's just like at the time, like, and I mean, I think the presentation of this film like shows how like um, progress can present itself as such and seem modern, but like, I don't know. Ultimately, what did the English wind up doing <laughs> with like a lot of Jesus their possessions? Christ. No, yeah, I like I like that this is a movie kind of about tradition, but it does you know it's one of the rare movies about tradition that's not trying to condemn it. You know, it's a much more harder answer. Yeah, Jesus, mm -hmm. using mummies to fuel a train is like some histoire du cinema shit. Like yeah. that, that seems yeah. like a metaphor that, Godard would make. That's like <laughs> using mummies exactly. to fuel a train. That's like using mice to fuel a car. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> I've been I've been teetering on this one. I gave it three and a half, and then I wanted to go four, and then I was like, it's a four. It's a four bullet flick for me. Uh, sorry, Malcolm. I, I can't stand in. I stand solid. alone. I I, I I gave my support for the three point five, uh, but yeah, it's a it's four for me. I really love this. It's like a very strange atmosphere uh the sound design does a lot of work here and of course the set design and costumes as previously mentioned um i i think on a narrative level i didn't quite you know fully get what it was doing but there were enough like just like signifiers of what was going on at large for me to grasp onto it and especially with the aesthetic approach kind of telling so much of the story and that aesthetic approach man it's pretty fucking cool, if you ask me. Uh, so yeah, I'm going four bullets on this one. And we'll be right back on Extended Clip. And we're back on Extended Clip. It's Malcolm in the Middle, everyone's favorite segment. Uh, Malcolm. Yeah. 
<laughs> Malcolm was Malcolm was dozing into the middle distance there, like as hard as I've uh, ever uh, seen it. Were are you good? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> that was that was uh, delayed reaction time. That's all I'm saying. Well, you know, sometimes you know, some days you're not as sharp as others. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. A, a, I, I don't mean, day. I don't mean to give you a hard time on the pod. I'm going through a lot right now. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> <laughs> The last thing yeah. I wanted to is give one of my boys a hard time on pod. Well, okay. Have well, you been I, watching anything recently? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have. Um, I watched Daisy Kenyon by Otto Preminger. You guys watch any Preminger? Uh, oh, Preminger rules. Movie. That's such an underrated movie, Malcolm. No, yeah. I, I've recently kind of gotten into him. I'd watched uh, The Man with the Golden Arm, and I thought it was all right. But then I, ch- I checked out uh, Bonjour Tr- Tristice or whatever, and that <laughs> that was amazing. That, yeah. that floored me, even though I probably mispronounced that. So I was kind of looking for another one in that vein, and it seemed like Daisy Kenyon was was that. And you know, it was a good time. It's about a, a Manhattan commercial artist, you know, the titular Daisy Kenyon. Um, you know, she has this ongoing affair with a married man um, who's played by Dana Andrews. But she kind of realizes that there's only, you know, so many places that this could go. So she kind of starts a relationship with Henry Fonda, who's like kind of just like a <laughs> this weirdo soldier who just like at the end of every day is just like, will you please marry me? Like, I love you. Like, please, 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 yeah. please. And then, you know, at the end, she's like, let's just let's take it a little slower. Yeah. And then she she eventually um, even though she loves the man, you know, she's having an affair with. She, uh, you know, marries Henry Fonda anyways. And it kind of unfolds from there. And uh, I don't know, this, the screenplay to this is just, it's its so exact. Like the way characters talk to each other, it feels so feels so modern. And, you know, I, I can't help, you know, I know not the biggest TV heads here, but I'm like, oh, this is like, hey, this is Mad Men. Because <laughs> 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 it's like, I don't know, its it deals with a lot of those those themes, kind of like, I don't know, like the Dana Andrews character is like someone whose marriage is kind of a sham and... You know, everyone involved with it knows it, but kind of just upholds it to not, you know, not even a reason that's known by them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, Preminger is uh, becoming one of my favorites of like kind of that classic Hollywood era. Evan, do you have some you have some thoughts on Daisy Kenyon? I haven't seen it in a long yeah. time. It's probably been like two years, maybe. But I do remember really, really loving that movie. Uh, it's one of my favorite Joan Crawford performances mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I, I think I, I liked it better than Mildred Pierce if we were going to talk about her like 40s melodramas. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, I love the. I also really love Henry Fonda's performance in that movie <laughs> because he gets to go way darker than he normally does. Um, and I think it's really interesting. I just realized Laura is the only Preminger I've seen. What wow. the fuck? Yeah. Fix that's, that. that's wild. Yeah. yeah. I think Crawford's performance here is great because he's... I don't know. She's playing at a different register than you see at a lot of performances at the time. Like just the way she's emotionally carrying herself. She uh she's almost anti melodramatic. There's like a scene, you know, where uh, yeah. Fonda's Fonda's, you know, being like, you know, I've always been lost or what you know, yeah. Things you tell girls so they feel sorry for you. They hang around a little <laughs> bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> no, so he was doing that, and um, <laughs> and, it, and then Dana she's Andrews like, on the Malcolm mentality. No, <laughs> it's Fonda. It's Fonda. Fonda. Sorry, Fonda. sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, yeah, I just I, just to wrap it up, it's just it's just kind of a zany performance, and you just I don't know. I I haven't seen Henry Fonda really in this context before, so it's a hey, good directing, good acting, good writing. That's a movie right there. <laughs> JT, what did you watch this week? Check um, all the boxes. <laughs> well, unintentionally. 
I um, wound up sticking with our our dead guy theme. I watched uh, 1999's The Mummy uh, with Brendan Fraser. Amazing. Um, my girlfriend has really been making a strong pitch for like recently in, in my home. The fellas that I live with, we've been doing a thing where we go through um, some trilogies of movies. We did the prequels. Uh, we did the Matrix movies. And my girlfriend was like, we should do all of the Mummy movies. And I was like, Brendan Fraser, Char Malone. Uh, has me sold um, and it was great to see him really hamming it up in there it's like a lot of the action uh, set pieces in it are kind of poorly directed but it's also just nice to see like a goofy studio movie in that vein like since it's 99 it's just like I don't know still riding high on that gung-ho Americano we can do fucking anything bullshit can't lose cinema <laughs> yeah can't lose cinema and there are a lot of really big uh sequences that like while they aren't like the the action isn't covered in a particularly interesting way they're like uh, there's an impressive thing going on like they set a big boat on fire at one point early on and I was like this is fucking cool um, and it's like funny in a way that's not like annoying like Marvel like smarmy stuff and it's just it's a pretty decent time at the movies damn you know I also checked out some uh, can't lose cinema this week <laughs> I, I watched Armageddon the 1998 film mm. by Michael Bay and Aerosmith. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do the song right here. Yeah, exactly. You know, we got I Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith. We got What Kind of Love Are You On by Aerosmith. We've got Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith. We've got Come Together by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Oh, wait, those are just the writers. It's by Aerosmith. You know, a love letter to both rock and roll and America and love itself uh, I, I think a distinction that we've given certain filmmakers doesn't seem to be applicable, but I would say that in this instance, Michael Bay does love love. <laughs> he does. He does. Also in Pearl Harbor, too. <laughs> we like, were just talking about Pearl Harbor right before we called you. Like, we, we really need to watch that yeah, one. Just the event, not the movie. I, yeah. That would be an <laughs> ideal extended clip pick, I yeah. think. Absolutely. I haven't seen that one since my U.S. history class in 11th grade. <laughs> 11th grade come on i know right <laughs> fucking honors class <laughs> you should you should do that with the fucking the clint eastwood world war ii movie the letters from iwo jima oh yeah oh, that that's awesome yeah, yeah, yeah i mean he had an american world war ii movie that same year though that's like a built-in double feature True. but to subvert that built-in double feature get a little bayhem in there Damn. with old clint that could be good but anyway Armageddon, uh, rock and roll aside, uh, also Lagrange by ZZ Top. You know that song that you find by typing in ZZ Top song with the laugh? Yeah. Uh, that song is how we introduce uh, Bruce Willis, you know, hitting golf balls at uh, Greenpeace protesters in the South China Sea while he's drilling for oil in there. <laughs> And so if he could drill for oil in the South China Sea with those fucking libs getting in his way, uh, you bet your ass he can drill uh, a hole into a meteor or asteroid or whatever that's about to destroy Earth. Uh, so, yes, NASA gets a bunch of oil men to go, uh, you know, save the world instead of astronauts. And, uh, yeah, it's it's really funny. It's like... Uh, 
he Bruce Willis just really doesn't want Ben Affleck to fuck his daughter, but <laughs> he just has to reckon with that throughout the whole movie. And, you know, uh, Michael Bay was clearly working through some kind of fantasy or nightmare in that scenario. Uh, but the scene of Bruce Willis accepting it early before they go on the mission, you know, uh, when Affleck is just getting a little last loving in before he uh, launches into space and he's just like licking Bruce Willis's daughter's back and Bruce Willis is just <laughs> looking at it <laughs> very very strange um I, I i think i'm fascinated by bay's sense of sexuality i think anybody is because it's just weird i guess and we it's grew like, up jacking off to it exactly <laughs> right like it, it is funny that he made a sex symbol out of megan fox and like he is the strangest like big budget sex guy like his blockbusters have such a weird approach to sexuality uh so the fact that he can make a sex icon from his films is kind of strange to me but you know he knows how 12 year old boys brains work i guess (laughs) you know not to disparage bay as an artist either he's a very he's a master of movement obviously all of the set pieces are just fucking ridiculous but i i didn't think it was that i i thought it was like come on give me bad boys too yeah. What about you, Evan? You watch anything noteworthy lately, or do you have any Armageddon thoughts? Our Armageddon thoughts? I haven't seen Armageddon since I was a kid. So and Michael Bay, I've always had a. I, of course, when I was a teenager and wanted to dislike anything popular, I I hated Michael Bay. But Michael Bay was one of the first filmmakers I actually ever got into because he was my dad's favorite when I was a kid. Uh, and Bad Boys 2 is my dad's favorite movie. So I've seen Bad Boys 2 like 12 times probably Damn. in my life from like an alarmingly young age. Um, that movie is like seared onto like my consciousness at this point. Yeah. Blue power, motherfuckers, Miami PD. Oh, damn. That if you know, if any of the <laughs> listeners out there haven't treated themselves to that two and a half hours of I, I can't even describe it, uh, <laughs> you know, go for it if you, if you have the strength, yeah. you know. <laughs> but <laughs> I haven't seen enough. Armageddon since I was a kid, but I do remember it feeling like very kind of like gushy and romantic in a way that Pearl Harbor is, and that both of them, I think, when I was like a 10 year old boy and watching these movies, I was like. Uh, this isn't what I want from a Michael Bay movie, um, <laughs> you know, so I kind of like checked out of them, but I'd be curious to see them like now and kind of see how they feel mm-hmm. uh, differently. What about your picks for Malcolm in the Middle? So this week I watched uh, I watched a couple Ernest Dickerson movies just to kind of like get in the headspace with Bones and nice. because after watching Bones, I really wanted to see more of his like genre films. Um so I watched uh, I watched Surviving the Game with Ice T and Rucker Hauer, um, which is this like pretty insane uh, most dangerous game uh, riff, uh, and then uh, I watched Demon Knight, which I think Malcolm has brought up on this segment before. Demon Knight fucking rules. Um, Actually, I've never Demon seen Demon Knight movie. is an amazing time. Um, <laughs> Malcolm shout out has to... not seen this movie. <laughs> oh, well, that's right. my bad. <laughs> I watched this movie in like a history of the horror movie class. Like this was one of the last ones we watched, which is hilarious. Like I think we were supposed to watch something contemporary and then my teacher couldn't get the disc. And she was like, well, I have either, I think it was like 
something else that no one cared about or demon knight and one person was like yeah demon knight rocks and she was like <laughs> okay i guess like uh, <laughs> and we watched demon knight and it fucking blew me away absolutely it's an absolute it's an absolute blast and shout out to former guest nathan smith because his letterbox log for that movie i saw after i watched it and it said it was perfect stoned viewing and i couldn't agree more mm-hmm. um but my favorite of his that i watched was uh juice from 1992 oh. um and it's really interesting the first half of it kind of plays like a sort of like very relaxed take on that cycle of hood movies from the 90s uh like boys in the hood and um poetic justice and uh a lot of those um other filmmakers that were i think a lot of those were hollywood productions right yeah yeah so um it was so it's kind of like situating itself in that period but halfway through the movie there's a like really shocking turn of events and it basically turns into a like almost sort of like proto slasher exploitation movie um where the villain is tupac uh, so if that sounds fun to anyone, I definitely recommend checking that out. It was just an incredibly unique movie and you get to, uh, it was the crazy thing to me is it was made in the same year as Malcolm X. Oh, so sure. Ernest Dickerson shot Malcolm X and made that movie in the same year, uh, which blows me away. Um, what, what a genius, but it's a super, super fun movie and it's incredibly thoughtful and you get to see him really kind of flex his filmmaking muscles like we'll kind of get into with Bones, there's this kind of like sense of color that he has that's very in tuned with Italian horror, but he also has this roving camera that is very kind of early Sam Raimi, and it's just this kind of like cocktail of a bunch of like eclectic reference points that is just extremely potent and very much his own too. Um, so he's, I mean, he's definitely been one of the most exciting discoveries i've had lately mm-hmm. no juice i am familiar with I've, I've seen that movie multiple times it's actually i i was into that movie kind of before i started watching movies the way i do now and yeah i think the way that movie kind of turns it becomes so dramatic and it, it really is enjoyable and i mean uh for any any fans of footwork techno out there there's a great um speech that tupac gives where he's he says i don't give a fuck like multiple oh, times, the where, DJ Rashad. Oh, there's a DJ Rashad song. Very even the way you said I yeah. knew it was for the DJ Rashad. Yeah, I don't God give damn. a fuck yeah. by DJ Rashad. Yeah. If you've seen Juice, you haven't heard that song, or if you've heard song, haven't seen the movie, you know what to do. Definitely gonna have to clip that in. Uh, oh, R.I.P. DJ Rashad, not Tupac. <laughs> <laughs> Tupac's alive in Serbia. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be right back on Extended Clip to talk about Bones.
And we're back on Extended Clip. Uh, before we get into Bones, I just wanted to make sure we get the message. Uh, we do have a Patreon, and it's a bonus episode every week, if you didn't know by now. Uh, Patreon.com slash Extended Clip, $2 a month. What do you know? Evan's going to be on uh, this coming week, as we mentioned earlier, to talk about Ega. But if you go on there right now, you know, if you just can't wait till Tuesday, if you're one of these freaks uh, who listens on Friday, can't wait till Tuesday, you can go back to the most recent Patreon episode, which was with Ryan Swen, uh, where we got a little Obayashi 101. And that was a fantastic episode, if I do say so myself. It was a really fantastic episode. Oh, oh shit. thank you. Wow. I don't even need to speak for it. So, so, <laughs> you know, I, I, finally, no, someone Ryan, else says the Patreon's Ryan's, good. Uh, Obayashi 101 spiel was amazing. I learned. I feel like I learned so much. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I unlocked too many episodes already, but when the next year, I'll unlock that one. I'll, <laughs> the people need Let's to give hear it like it. seven months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just think they need to hear helpful. the gospel. It is they need helpful. to hear the gospel. Yeah, it's two fucking bucks. Pony up. Yeah, or pony get up. the fuck out. Pony up. Pony <laughs> up. <laughs> Those without two dollars won't get that knowledge. Sorry. <laughs> Extended clip: the number one podcast in the knowledge category. <laughs> We're a knowledge distributor. Oh no. Holes, 2001. Uh, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> doing please keep that yeah, in. Oh, please, please, God damn please. it. God damn it. I, I'm going to cut a lot of that out, but for the listener, uh, we've had a rough time of it here. You're a goddamn whole head. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bones, 2001. Ernest Dickerson. Um, Ernest Dickerson, many people know... Uh, primarily as a cinematographer who worked on uh, basically all of Spike Lee's early films up through Malcolm X. That was the final uh, collaboration between the two of them. Uh, Evan, do you you have a little Dickerson background info for us? Yeah, I do. Um, So Ernest Dickerson uh, was Spike Lee's cinematographer from uh, his first film, She's Gotta Have It, up through Malcolm X in 1992. Uh, which is when Ernest Dickerson always wanted to direct. And so he, once he was given the chance to make juice, he jumped on that and he transitioned to directing full time. Uh, although he apparently, I um, also shout out to the important cinema club episode on Ernest Dickerson, where I got a lot of really good info from um, apparently Ernest Dickerson used to direct while Spike Lee was acting Oh, wow. uh, in the early films. So he he already had a lot of experience under his belt. Um, and once you go and watch Ernest Dickerson's movies he directed and you go back and watch his films he made with Spike Lee, you can really just see his fingerprints all over everything. And it's so amazing. Um, but uh, so he transitioned into directing full time. Uh, and Bones was his second to last feature that he made. Uh, he made another one called uh, Never Die Alone in 2004 or 2006, I think. I can't remember. Starring DMX. Um, and yeah. Um, and after since then, he's mostly worked on TV pretty steadily. He's had trouble getting projects financed. Uh, but Bones was incredibly derided uh, and a huge bomb when it first came out, uh, which I don't know. I just, like I said earlier, I'm obsessed with this movie. It's insane. We were and too spoiled. I, 
2001, and, we had so many fucking good movies. Like we, we, we just threw we so much good shit by the wayside because it was weird, you know. Now we're we're lucky to get one weird movie a year. <laughs> exactly, one truly weird movie <laughs> a year. You know, not one that's branded that way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Not one that's random. <laughs> not, <laughs> not random. Weird, not random. <laughs> yeah, that's the extended clip secondary ethos behind <laughs> global, not globalist, is weird, not random, or creep, weirdo. <laughs> Whatever whatever word you want to call it. Yeah. Keep yeah. extended clip weird. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the bumper sticker. <laughs> uh, so this film, though, Bones, um, we open on uh, a couple of drug-buying whites getting into trouble, just like Snow on the Bluff a few weeks ago. <laughs> uh, a similar opening set piece, this one much more haunted, of course. Uh, to introduce this location uh, and then over the opening credits we're introduced to Snoop Dogg through the haze that he puts through that camera and whatever processing they do for the cinematography uh, to make it look like that for that kind of 70s uh, not just a black exploitation feel but really like a nostalgic flashback feel despite the fact that yeah. so much of this film does have that throughout it you know uh, it doesn't really get old or feel overused uh, I, I really love that aesthetic and Snoop Dogg's character Jimmy Bones being introduced uh, in that really great like pattern of shots between the car and then the interior close-ups on either parts of the car or his switchblade uh there's really great editing throughout this but they're like little pockets like there really is stand out as just like just such effective stuff yeah Uh (laughs) um yeah no i like i love the flashback stuff it's kind of like a sepia tone and I, i you know some people don't take that negatively it looks good and I, I love the kind of, I feel like Dickerson has such a distinct use of like color tone that's definitely recognizable in like a classic, say like, do the right thing. I think like do the right thing is almost like a good like textbook movie to like teach because the, the, the use of color there is, you know, very great, but also kind of obvious in its way. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, it's you have a lot of that going on here and kind of like the contrast between you kind of have like this colder tone, especially in the nighttime scenes. Um, in the modern day, yeah. kind of like, you know, of course, the warm haze of nostalgia over these flashback scenes. And, you know, you get to see Snoop Dogg uh, flip around a switchblade, you know, kind of say, you know, spout catchphrases. And, you know, until he starts kind of like acting, you know, you know, with uh, more dialogue interactions. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Dickerson, like you know, you saying that, like, uh, you know, he used to direct some Spike Lee scenes, you know, the ones where he was acting. I mean. It makes sense because his directorial chops straight from Juice is already pretty high. And I feel like it's something that's just consistent throughout his mm-hmm. career and it's mm-hmm. definitely noticeable here. It's interesting. One other thing I learned from that podcast is that uh, he took a lot of in- inspiration from Mario Bava, who uh, he was introduced to by Martin Scorsese, actually. Oh, wow. So another uniting factor for these Damn. two movies um when they worked on a commercial together uh and apparently there was a featurette on the bones dvd like entirely dedicated to the baba influence oh, wow. uh so it's definitely like a significant part of like how the movie is conceived and definitely once we get into the like end of the movie where you know we we don't believe in spoilers here uh obviously but it like uh the last like 20 minutes of the movie literally take place in hell yeah uh and it just goes like full-blown fulci there Mm. at the end uh but everything leading up to that has that same kind of like 
this rich sense of like color and shadow and uh even like the blood in this movie almost it's like thick and it looks like paint um and it's just like everything is so kind of like all of the color is just maxed out and it's like and then when you throw in the uh the early 2000 cg like with the Mm -hmm. flames it's just it's such an expressive cocktail i do love the um whatever they're doing to the film stock in the 70s sequences too um i'm not sure what they're doing but it's like it's just it's so like it captures the period so well uh, yeah, I think I was reminded of Fulci more than Bava because of the cinemascope, first of all, uh, because I guess generally Bava liked the taller frame, at least from what I've seen, he uses like the you know, 178 or 185 or whatever, uh, and all the Fulci I've seen has been in cinemascope, uh, but also just like, yeah, the descent into hell, uh, you know, toward the end, definitely felt like the beyond at certain points, uh, and also just the those gray smoky textures also reminded me of how uh fulci shot the beyond but back to this film it centers around a group of uh young professionals <laughs> trying to open a, a nightclub uh in the hood because they got the deal so it's kind of a you know gentrification thing but the second layer uh-huh. of it being that their money comes from the father of these two brothers, uh, much like the uh, first movie we watched, uh, uh, two brothers and their father's legacy in the history of that location. Uh, their father used to live on that block and then became, you know, a conservative businessman uh, and moved them to the suburbs. And uh, he's, you know, furious when he finds out that his kids are, you know, returning uh, to, you know, the hood and have, you know, I don't know. It, it's like, uh, it's definitely a twist on the, like the gentrification angle. That's so easy to take. That makes it a little more difficult. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's a really yeah. interesting one for that reason. And also, you know, their other friend, that guy, Maurice, they, they joke about him being post-racial uh, <laughs> because of his ambiguity. Yes. yes. Uh, and like, then yeah. he gets into some weird KFC conspiracy theory. Uh, love don't eat no fried chicken. Why not eat everything else? <laughs> Look, everybody knows the whole chicken distribution network is owned by the Klan. Oh, come on, man. Don't even go there. Who's the last time you seen a black chicken farm? <laughs> man, special recipe. I'm telling you, there's something in the batter that makes a black man sterile. Oh, bullshit. Yo, hold up, man. Why all of a sudden you so concerned with the plight of the black man? Last time I checked, you was not black. There's, there's like, I wrote down one of the things that they that they said. Uh, my favorite was uh, he's, like, getting really mad at them. And he uh, he's yelling. He's like, "I am the melting pot." And then one of them goes, "You're smoking pot." Maurice <laughs> uh, 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 is a stoner. He's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah he, he has the comically large joint, uh, and, the, <laughs> and he's also oh, comically yeah. horny at times, which is very fun mm-hmm. for a horror movie to have. Yes. You know, comically horny young adults. That's uh, what horror movies revolve around, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this house that they're going to turn into the nightclub is. Uh, where the two boys' father alongside, you know, a cop and another guy killed Jimmy Bones, Snoop Dogg. And uh, he's reincarnated as a dog, but also his skeleton holds, you know, some of his soul as well. And as the dog 
kills people his skeleton starts to rejuvenate and reform him as you know an Ugh. undead snoop dog and uh once he comes that back scene from the dead, later oh God. no sorry i was that scene later like that is one of the grossest scenes i've seen in any movie <laughs> where the dog is eating i think maurice yeah right? yeah yeah uh, the dog is eating Maurice and it's cutting back and forth really rapidly, but the dog is like ripping his guts out <laughs> and eating them. And then you see like the skin and tendons and muscles like going, filling back in on Snoop Dogg's skeleton. It's just like the practical gore in this movie is just really, really disgusting. And so is all of like the fluids and the maggots yeah. mm-hmm. and those like black walls with like all of the like arms hanging out of them. <laughs> It's just there's so much good like horror in that wall of death is insane. Not to you know to borrow a phrase from I believe Lamb of God called their mosh pit the wall of death. <laughs> uh, but that wall of death uh, where just all those bodies form is just such a gross like idea even. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, what you were saying about how gross that eating scene is, he also totally telegraphs it too because when they're first taking care of the dog. It shows that gross close-up of the dog eating raw beef and intercuts it with the yeah. skeleton. Uh, and so it's just like a lot of it, if you think about it, is kind of like obvious. But I think the way that Dickerson uses montage throughout this ends up being so clever because the pure horror at hand <laughs> is like so in your face and nasty and even fun sometimes, you know, uh, that like the... Yeah. I guess intellectual montage, I guess uh, doesn't register until after you watch it. It's a very visceral movie right up front. It's a very like detail orientated movie too. I think that's why a lot of the practical horror is so great. Like on rewatch, cause this is my second time watching this too. Like there is such a, like you see every time like a, a character's dragged, you get the claw marks on the way back. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's, or yeah. And they're, yeah, bloody. exactly. Or just like with the, the kind of the skeleton rejuvenation, you know, we see the vein, we see like every step of the process. Like there's a lot of uh, attention and love given to these effects. And I think like it integrates well with, you know, kind of like the social message it's trying to give about, you know, like gentrification and it's, it's, you know, intertwines it well. And it's not like subtle, but it's also not obvious. And it, it like, um, cause there are like conversations where they are like directly talking about it mm. with their father kind of, yeah. but it, but it's, you know, there's the focus there's so much focus on the practical effects and there's so much joy in that obviously that you know dickerson creates like a good mix a good mesh and like he presents like i don't know i I don't know pretty obvious material but i think like dickerson brings the cred to it as well i mean just by how effective of like a horror film this is and then also like the pam greer in this and just sort of a nod to like the history of like exploitation films as well, I think adds a lot of gravitas to it. Yeah. Pam Greer's character is great. Uh, I think she's so good. I think I described it similarly for ghost of Mars, which came out the same year where it's just like a fit role for just a legend to come through and just absolutely destroy it. And uh, it's a perfect role for her like that. And yeah, it's at this point where people are finally being like, okay, we got to give, Pam Greer, these legacy roles, you know, Jackie yeah. Brown, Ghost of Mars, this, like, these feel like roles for legends. Uh, and she, yeah, definitely delivers on that front. Uh, she uh, was the, not, w- w- was she married to Jimmy Bones or just his She girl- was his girlfriend. girlfriend. Okay. And uh, they had a kid together who's her daughter uh, that she lives with. I 
do they live at her psychic place? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Okay, yes, they yeah. do. They live at her psychic place. And as place. we said earlier, the psychic place on the window has a design very similar to the necklace yes. from the first movie. So my theory with this, if you want me to go oh, into do. it now, is that it's so in the night of counting the years that, you know, this eye represents like regeneration and protection. And it's put on a lot of funerary um things to sort of like protect the dead sort of and um it's uh, in the night of counting the years it's right over the mummy's heart that's what they take from it and you know once they you know once they do that that kind of sets off this chain of events where it's like once that can be bought and sold that can't be undone um so the protection is removed uh but then in bones it's um Pam Greer's shop is right across from Snoop Dogg's house, which I should add is like also totally like a classic haunted house. It's very gothic looking. Uh, It really like sticks out for the rest of the neighborhood. Um, And she's the only one of the central characters, including the the brother's dad and uh, Snoop's old bodyguard uh, that were complicit in his murder because he was murdered. You see like midway through the movie in Mm -hmm. a flashback. Uh, because the cop, um, Lupovich, uh, decides that he's he wants Jimmy Bones to start peddling crack. And the dad and a drug dealer in the uh, neighborhood and are bringing the cop in to make this deal. And Jimmy Bones refuses, so the cop shoots him. Um, or wait, is it the drug dealer that shoots him? I can't remember. Uh, but one cop. of them yeah, does. Never mind. It's the cop, yeah. He sh- uh, he shoots Jimmy Bones, and he decides that all of them have to be complicit in it, so that they can just bury Jimmy Bones and forget about it, and at the in the bottom of his house, um, and so that he makes them all stab Jimmy Bones, but Pam Greer's character, he's going to make her do it, but Jimmy Bones pulls the knife into himself, so that she's absolved of like that complicity. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, like her, her storefront right across from his house is kind of like, and she's a medium, she communicates with the dead. So she's kind of the like wall of protection between Snoop Dogg and the younger generation, uh, of characters that we see in the movie. Um, so it has like a significance in that way in both of them, I think. I love the scene you described where, you know, we have Snoop being forced to, you know, was being forced to sell crack, but also they... Have they force him to smoke it too, and it kind of renders like you know yeah. this his, it's so yeah. cruel and hard. No, yeah, to it watch. is cruel, and it kind of it's a very smart rendition of you know real life you know you know tragedies of crack being you know infiltrated into inner city communities, and renders it as actual like horror filmmaking. I think it's a really smart scene. Mm-hmm. I like the pairing of uh, Bones and Greer, um, just because like I mean. Snoop, I don't think, is the best actor, but he certainly has a lot of charisma and presence. And I think bringing him as this, like, initially his, like, past persona as this wholly likable, like, figure in the community, like, works well with um, his relationship with Greer and her, like, acting chops that she has. And then I think it also works when Bones does the flip and, like, goes from being wholly good to, like, pretty evil. Mm -hmm. And also just exploring the haunted house, you know, like, Mm -hmm. at the first inkling of him being back and uh, the the 
paint-like blood just dripping from every faucet, basically, and, like, just drenched uh, on top of the pipes in the basement or whatever. Uh, Maggots coming from the ceiling. Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, There's that disgusting scene where the dog, like, vomits, projectile vomits maggots onto the one yeah. brother oh it's much like it's the rough. the rain of bugs in suspiria yeah whenever when the whole party gets rained on with <laughs> maggots just absolutely disgusting um oh yeah also like when the whole house is like leaking blood someone says rust never sleeps i was, I was <laughs> wait for one of us to mention yeah. that <laughs> well not to old neil i i think i think the you know thinking how there's such a rich bava influence on this you know even said by the director himself i feel like kind of just the haunted house aspect of it is where like the bava influence comes in and kind of the fun he has exploring the house and also kind of like the you know the paint blood red is like i think bava does that but that's also just a common thing kind of throughout a lot of giallos you know i think i i you know i of course you feel bava but like you you know we've mentioned argento and fulci already i think like there's a just a big italian horror influence on this oh totally and yeah who better to take influence from in terms of horror exactly yeah yeah well i will say one thing really quickly uh, is uh i do love what they do uh in the like contemporary scenes not the 1970s scenes uh how they have the cop dressed Mm -hmm. because he's just in this like disgusting fat suit (laughs) and he's like He's just like groaning and burping mm-hmm. all the time and shoving food in his face. And there's this, there's one scene where he's like hitting on uh, the da- the conservative father's like mm-hmm. daughter, and he's like s- like devouring this chocolate. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> it's a real, it's it's a real um, Bigfoot Bjornsson yeah, moment. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and it's just, I love that like characterization where he's just like this. Like, he's just like a real disgusting pig, and it's like so oh perfect. Oh my god, that, that, it's so funny when he's <laughs> leering at the daughter when he's eating that ice cream. So good. Nice rack. How old is she? Does she um? No. That's my daughter, Lubavitch. Oh. Get the fuck off my property. Your daughter. Nice to see you. You fat bastard. So as the dog barfs up maggots uh, and eats Maurice, uh, Snoop then, you know, is revived as Jimmy Bones. And he comes back with extra undead powers because <laughs> he basically just kills people by, like, punching them with a switchblade. It's a, it's a weird move that he does for yeah. most of the kills in this. But uh, the first time it's revealed, you also see this shot of it, like dragging through a pool table oh right God, after they're yeah. playing pool and that shot is oh like, it's so cool ooh, straight out of nightmare on elm street type shit like just disgusting and also beautiful and such a great use of like movement tracking along the pool table you know and like those textures too uh such great practical effects there no i, I, lo- I love the turn this movie kind of takes once bones comes back from the dead because it, t- it takes such like a bitter turn as like snoop is exacting revenge on like the people who destroyed this neighborhood mm. essentially but even even that you know because that's understandable right even kills like his bodyguard yeah. friend who was you know somewhat complicit he was gonna die if he didn't stab snoop but uh i, I mean just the spite he comes back with is you know it's very commanding and it's you know snoop's such a chill guy yeah he's always smoking that weed yeah how did he get so angry to do the acting? I, I just can't understand it. Yeah, dude, they really had to get a lot out of him there. Yeah, you must have been. So... <laughs> he, 
he's he's like he's snarling through this like back half yeah. of the movie and like slinging these one-liners i think at one point uh he says like dog eat dog before he's gonna oh, murder yeah, that's someone great. yeah dog eat dog brother dog eat dog and uh i love how there's a there's a point here where um before Snoop Dogg opens up the portal to hell in his home and drags Pam Greer and all of the younger characters down with him, he is going around and he's murdering all of the people who are involved in his death. And he collects all of their severed yeah. heads, which can still talk. Um, and it's just, it takes on this just like really goofy dimension too that adds like another layer of just interesting stuff to the yeah i can see people being turned Um, off by that like it's kind of pivot toward that kind of humor of the talking decapitated heads but i found that very fun i i was a big fan of that i loved it and it's also just like pairing that with the essentially like the welcome to hell uh, for the last like 20 or so minutes right before the very end uh is you know as we said before similar to the beyond but also just like different in the sense that there, there's the one uh set that's just full of these red candles where uh snoop and pam greer are together and it's like just a like it's romantic but it's also haunting and like kind of horrifying uh and yeah the, there's like a weird strain of doomed romance that comes in his reunion with pam greer here as like undead people uh very very interesting like dynamic there as opposed to how the rest of the third act goes, how the rest of the characters fates lay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any final thoughts on this one before we wrap it up? Uh, no. Yeah. I, I really like this movie. It improved in my estimations on the rewatch. I feel like, you know, you take a non-traditional actor like Snoop and I feel like Dickerson played into his strengths here with, you know, of course the flashback scenes mm-hmm. yeah. where he can kind of just pose and look cool. And then kind of, uh, you know, the kind of punchline heavy second half. And he does other stuff beyond that. But th- those yeah. are like the big, those are the money moments. You want to see Snoop play with the switchblade and look cool. You want to, you know, hear him say a funny line. He does this, but he also, there's a good amount of tonal juggling. Like, you know, like you said, there's a weird romance aspect at the end. A lot of the first half of the movie is funny, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, there's some genuine gross out horror moments. And I think Dickerson does a good job um, juggling all of those. And sh- should I give a rating now? Yeah, so, yeah sure. Cop it with a rating. Yeah. I'm going to give it four bullets. I'm also going to give it four bullets. I think it's a great film. Uh, I wanted to give it three and a half to differentiate it from Demon Knight, which is still my favorite uh, Dickerson film from the few that I've seen. But, you know, they're both great. They can both be great. Uh, This is just like such a magnetic performance from both of the leads here, Greer and Snoop Dogg. Uh, And Dickerson's camera is just like, I don't know. It, it it never feels like his movement is like wandering. It always feels so exacting, but it also at the same time kind of feels floating and mysterious. And uh, yeah, I, I think his camera movement is like very interesting and I definitely want to check out more from him. Uh, JT, what about you? Um, I'm giving this one four bullets as well. Um, it's a lovely flick. I mean, I think we've like talked about the obvious uh, Giallo influence which, I mean, is one of the main features that I really love about the movie. 
But it's just weird because I feel like this le- also leans in, like, obviously very much so also inspired by Giallo, but the 80s slasher mm-hmm. trend in how it, like, gets goofy in that, like, latter half. And it's just weird that, like, at a certain point that wasn't that type of silliness, like, I mean, as I guess it makes sense with, like, the way mainstream taste is sort of changing in the 2000s, but that audiences were ready to discount this. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I I loved it and I'm excited to do another Dickerson. I think probably in the coming days I'm going to do surviving the game. Nice. That has really appealed to me. That's the one where they hunt, uh, iced tea. Iced tea. Yeah. Iced tea. Yeah. Iced tea is a homeless guy. And then, uh, Rucker Howard and F Murray Abraham are these like corporate businessmen who decide to like most dangerous game style. Sounds fun to me. Uh, Evan, what about you? Um, I'm going to give this one four and a half bullets. Um, I like, I honestly, I really want to give this one a five (laughs) at some point. There's just a few things I'm not like a hundred percent sold on. Um, like I would like just a little more Pam Greer, uh, to be honest, and like a little more room for her character to grow. But other than that, I just have an absolute blast Mm -hmm. with this movie. And I also love how it incorporates, the black exploitation elements and all of its social commentary. I think for a movie with as much, like as as many different tones that are going on in it, it's able to balance all of these plates really well. Um, and it's yeah, I I agree with um, JT. It was disappointing to realize that audiences were ready to discount this as quickly as they were. Because I think, you know, that trend towards very kind of like very removed seriousness in horror uh, and popular horror now is just like really concerning. Uh, and this is exactly the kind of thing I want to see. Um, so I but I do think it's encouraging that it seems like this movie is kind of building up more of a cult audience online. So it has a Scream Factory Blu-ray. So that's a good sign. That is a least. good sign. Let's get sponsored by Scream Factory. <laughs> or, that, sounds, that sounds like a pretty bad play. A Scream Factory? <laughs> what do they got? I mean, there's a number of things that could be causing those screams. So I, I just, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, not endorse them. Well, I mean, you, you, we could do it naturally like that where you yeah. ask me hey, that. Hey, do, you, do we have any emails? Uh, yes, we do. <laughs> Hey, Andy, I saw you over there, and I, I just decided to ask you a question about the emails. Yes. What was the question? <laughs> Where are they? <laughs> I mean, you got to go to gmail.com and log in. The but, first part of the login I'll share here, which is extendedclippodcast.gmail.com. The password, I will tell you confidentially. Our first email this week uh, is from Valerie. Email segment. MVP. Uh, hey, fellows, after a long while of mailbag question writer's block, I finally have another question. So uh, over the past couple of months, I've been very slowly making my way through Twin Peaks. And I think what has taken me so long to get into it is because my parents were so into it. it are there any movies or TV shows that you haven't seen or put off watching longer than you should have because people in your family were really into them? Sincerely, Valerie. Hmm. That is an interesting one. I feel like I almost have the opposite with like my dad and Seinfeld. That one, at least I was like, okay, he likes it. I'm eight years old. I'll watch it. And uh, it's stuck. Yeah. I, I I don't really, I think I resist the things my mom's into because we don't have the same taste. I yeah. think it's like, I you know, 
But my mom said she liked Twin Peaks when it was on TV. Yeah, my 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 parents have pretty decent taste. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, they, I was also Seinfeld pilled at a young age, and you know they liked Hitchcock. And I remember my mom showing me like Psycho when I was twelve. I mean, yeah, and they've tried me to you know to get me watch like The Crown or some shit, and I'm just like, I'm not gonna watch it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, uh, you know what? I I do have one. I'll say Twilight. I uh, I I you know as a kid, especially growing up living next to my sister, who I freaking hate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like you know she went to all the premieres and stuff. I was like, I'm not gonna watch those. Yeah. And then I watched the first one last year. It was pretty fun. Uh, yeah. You know, but like if I wasn't living with a sister at the time, I probably just would have checked it out for cultural relevancy uh, when when those movies came out or at least one of them. You know, I actually just rewatched all five Twilight nice. movies for the first time since I was a kid. I remember watching them with my mom when they came out, oddly. Um, but no, those were. The, oh, and honestly, I think they're so much fun. <laughs> there's just like there's there's like a there's way more to chew on than yeah. I remembered. Um, but honestly, yeah, I don't, I mean, my, my parents and I have very different taste, um, but we've always just kind of watched like most things that come mm-hmm. out together. Uh, I have to say I'd, it would be easier for me. There's plenty of examples where they, they've really taken to something that I have a very strong negative reaction <laughs> to. Like what? Um, the, the the most recent one would have to be Jojo oh, Rabbit. Yeah. I had a lot um, of people in my family that which really was a, fucked with Jojo Rabbit. Which was a which was a painful afternoon. Yeah. Um because I was just sitting at, I mean, they were really enjoying it and I didn't wanna like I didn't wanna sour the mood or anything, but I was just sitting in the on the couch just kinda groaning to myself the entire time. Yeah, when Oscar season comes around and the family wants to ask, you know, the movie guy, me <laughs> It's like all right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna grin and say yeah it was fun to uh, every movie because it's like I'm not gonna tell them that I think yeah. all of those movies suck because you know what they had a good time and they're my yeah. family and I'm gonna be nice yeah I have, exactly. I have the opposite where it's like I'm so domineering to the point where they wouldn't even suggest <laughs> like this movie they're like all right Malcolm's doing his thing you know we're not gonna push any Jojo rabbit on him yeah so. maybe I'll just you know drop a Woody Allen hot take to get his attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i like my folks i mean my mom doesn't like watches like one movie like a year just about i mean recently it was pretty funny she asked me if next time she asked if i've seen joker yet Mm -hmm. and i lied and it's just like no i don't want to have a joker conversation and she was like well next time you're home can we watch it together it looks a little scary (laughs) that's so sweet that's sweet um so i I might rewatch joker with my mom but like my dad has like pretty like decent enough tastes like just westerns for the most part oh that's cool well watch a western with your dad if he's around we all love our parents i guess always a good move (laughs) always a good move. is this the kind of show we're transitioning (laughs) it's what indywire wants (laughs) it's what the big boss wants nice core core. love your parents (laughs) mom and dad are okay by me (laughs) um next week on the podcast Ethan Vetsby will be joining us. Uh, I know that December was going to be our month of returning champions, but we are bringing a new friend to the pod. We are going to be talking about, is it 50,000 leagues under the sea? Is that what it's called? How many leagues is it? Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot of them. I know that. It's pretty deep. It's a league. Yeah. 
20,000 leagues. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that sounded like a bit too much. 50,000. We're, we're going to be talking about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, Richard Fleischer's film from 1954, and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, so, you know, it'll be uh, a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I don't know. Um at extended clip 69 is our twitter and uh evan is there anything you would like to plug to the audience um i don't have anything to plug right now uh because i'm working on programming a virtual screaming uh, screaming a screening series uh through my school emory um as like my final senior project um but i hope that I can start writing some stuff again soon and putting things out there. So just stay tuned. But uh, my Twitter is at uh, Evan D. Amaral uh, if you want to follow me or reach me there. Cool. You guys have anything to plug this week? Yeah, if you want to mail me something, I'm at... Damn powerful a, doxing yeah. yourself. New approach to the show. Uh, 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 no, actually, I, I don't. Send, I, I that's where I used to live. Don't send anything <laughs> unless you want to send the new. Like, if you want to send whoever's living there now, like, like warnings. Like Malcolm used to live here. A racist w- podcaster out. used to live here. Whoa, whoa, whoa! No, but that 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 address does have historical value. That is where we recorded our episode with Will Sloan. True. Uh, the Dream Warriors. Mm. That was a very fun episode and one of our episodes of bank check uh, yeah the fairly brothers we also recorded there that right. was that was the burbank glendale era of extended clip those, that, those two weeks that apartment <laughs> was very hot that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> I'm air conditioning was I'm, broke i'm bleeping the address by the way yeah, I, yeah no that's yeah. fire that's uh, fair we don't need the address just write some letters to local city government telling them to preserve that building as a historical monument yeah okay i'll leave the address and then <laughs> <laughs> if it's for historical purposes <laughs> That's that's technically fair use under yeah, copyright law. It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Big badass Eddie Mac got shit for brains, and that's a fact. <laughs>